Hi, and welcome to the Science in the City podcast, your gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, Tamara Johnson. This podcast is presented as part of the Translational Medicine Initiative, a partnership between the New York Academy of Sciences and the Josiah Macy Jr. Foundation to foster the translation of basic science discoveries into clinical healthcare. Find out more about this initiative at nyas.org slash transmed. That's T-R-A-N-S-M-E-D. Digital technologies are playing a crucial role in the implementation of personalized and preventive healthcare, transforming the doctor-patient relationship, enabling and encouraging patients to take a more active role in their own care, and providing the ability to tackle big data in an efficient, significant way that allows for vast quantities of information to be curated and brought to bear on individual cases. This is really the new frontier. How do you deliver quality care that's based on the latest evidence, that's based on very sophisticated data like genomic data, all in the constraints and confines of a healthcare system? And the real exciting aspect to that is, is that the underlying data sets are bigger, so huge that they're not human knowable. We absolutely need technology-based tools to help us make the best decisions based on, on those data. That was Dr. Mark Triola, Associate Dean for Educational Informatics at the NYU School of Medicine and Director of the Division of Educational Informatics. We'll be hearing more from him soon about some exciting ways in which technology is changing the way medicine is taught. We'll also be talking to Dr. Joseph Kavidar, Founder and Director of the Center for Connected Health, and Dr. Martin Cohn, Chief Medical Scientist for Care Delivery Systems at IBM's Watson Research Center. First up, we'll hear from Dr. Kavidar. To start, what are some developments in digital healthcare and how are they being put to use? The big predominance in healthcare of digital technologies now is in the mobile space, or at least that's getting so much attention. The use of tablets or mobile devices by clinicians and patients to interact with the healthcare system in various ways is really what's taking off. And, and, and there's incredible excitement. Of course, whenever there's excitement, there's hype. But be, beneath the hype, there's also some very thoughtful and exciting work going on. For instance, there are companies offering physicians the ability to see data on mobile devices such as uh, cardiac tracings or x-rays or CT scans, wherever they are, so that when they're in one location, if there's a patient that they've cared for in another location, the staff in that location can get uh, to them and, and get quality decision-making based on, on sharing those information via mobile technologies. And for patients, of course, the 14,000 or 15,000 apps in the iStore that are related to health, all very, very interesting, in some ways overwhelming. But again, there's a few of those that are sailing as well. And they're mostly in the fitness arena, apps to help you track your fitness to be more fit. And there's quite a lot of interesting work in the app space on diet as well. How is this kind of technology affecting the way that doctors practice medicine? It enables really fundamental, important things about care delivery to improve. The first is mobility, and that is that with digital health and an iPad or an Android tablet or a, or a smartphone, I can get health information about my patient uh, delivered to me in the moment when the patient needs me most and when I need to have all that information to make those decisions. So that's very, very powerful, of course. 
uh, and enables also the the other big development I think, which is the data analytics that go behind it to to enable the system to send me smart information, if you will, not just a, a long series of data points, but a synopsis of relevant data that are about that patient at that moment in time that can aid in decision making uh, as well. And I think those are the two big uses that uh, we see. Uh, right now for healthcare providers. Which disease areas have seen the most benefits so far from this type of technology? Well, we're at the Center for Connected Health, we're very focused on chronic illness, and we've had great success with uh, heart failure, diabetes, uh, hypertension. Those three chronic illnesses make up an enormous amount of healthcare costs. And I guess if you throw obesity in, it's, you, can't, you can't beat the opportunity for those four conditions. And we've made strides in all four uh, there is, of course, if you if you throw in the use of uh, text messaging platforms and and uh, mobile tech uh, technology in that way, you can certainly do work with both infectious disease surveillance and infectious disease prevention. We haven't done as much of that work, but it's certainly out there, uh, and that's exciting as well. But I would say probably the biggest near term opportunities are in chronic illness and in particularly in preventions, things like smoking cessation, weight control, improvement in activity, improvement in diabetes, improvement in high blood pressure, all because we can now match biometric data, the objective data from sensors, blood pressure cuffs, uh, pedometers, weight scales, and the like. We can match those data with smart algorithms that will enable motivational messaging that, are, that is context-specific and keeps the individual engaged in those data. And we found over and over again in our studies that when we can catch individuals' attention around healthcare data and keep them engaged, they do better, their outcomes improve. Exponential gains in processing power and data storage capacities are also making whole genomic sequencing increasingly affordable with exciting promise for diagnostic and preventive opportunities. So genetics and genomic information is really powerful and we're starting to see opportunities to integrate that into the mix as well. Uh, we're getting to the point now where the cost to sequence your genome will, will be in the hundreds of dollars uh, in the next few years. We can learn a whole lot about your risk of developing chronic illness by your genetic information and, and speed uh, the delivery of some of these programs to keep you healthier based on that information. So that's a, a true prevention opportunity most people who get, for instance, type 2 diabetes have had prediabetes for 10 years and not known it. Uh, we, we can, with genetic uh, information, get to you far earlier before you even uh, start to develop prediabetes. And with a proper plan for uh, diet and, and, and activity, um, maybe you never get type 2 diabetes at all. Is there any risk of patients feeling alienated by all this technology? In that case, the news is all good. When we started this work, people were quite cautious uh, that there's somehow that using these technologies uh, to provide care in, in uh, non-traditional settings would, would drive a wedge between the patient and the provider. In fact, the provider and patient feel more connected. Patients feel they have a tether into the system because of these uh, digital tools, whether they be, uh, again, monitoring tools or uh, the ability to do uh, video calls or what have you. And the fact that they can uh, get their healthcare provider's attention without leaving uh, their home 
is a really powerful access tool. So we've seen it only strengthen the provider-patient relationship. What about patients' privacy in all of this? Is there anything problematic? Well, privacy is an enormous concern in any digital endeavor, and healthcare is even more special in that regard. So we pay the highest attention possible to preserving patients' privacy. I would say that the privacy risk in any of these implementations is is no more serious than the privacy risk that we face with our, our, our financial information or other information that we now share on the, on the internet. So while I would say privacy is critical and we take every possible step to assure privacy breaches will happen, the benefits of using this kind of a technology system far outweigh the limitations and the risks of privacy. Okay, now we'll hear from Dr. Martin Cohn whose research at the IBM Watson Research Center focuses on the use of artificial intelligence in clinical decision-making, both by doctors and patients. Let's start with the idea of big data. Just what exactly does that mean, and why is it so daunting? Well, we can simply look at the published research literature in healthcare, the, the journals, the many, many healthcare journals. For example, in 2010, the National Library of Medicine cataloged just about 700,000 new articles. So a lot of information out there, far beyond the ability of any person to consume, read, integrate, uh, remember, um, and use. So um, there's a survey that showed that, you know, for a a large fraction of physicians, the, the most they can spend is three to five hours a week reading. And even when they do, they focus on two or three journals that are most relevant to their practices which means there's this huge array of information out there um, that they haven't read, that they can't, which they can't access, they can't use for decision-making. The vast amount of information that exists out there is so overwhelming in volume and velocity and variety that um, we're, we're simply unable to keep up with it and use it as effectively as we might. And without being able to use information better, to make it easier to make um, evidence-supported decisions, we're not going to be able to achieve any of these goals. How is technology helping doctors face the challenge of utilizing all this information? We're working on a range of techniques and, and areas in health to make it easier to use that information. We're mostly focused on, you know, in a, in a broad sense, uh, decision support. And so one of the areas which we call knowledge-driven clinical support. Basically, the assumption that the knowledge exists someplace. It's published someplace, it's written someplace, um, it may be uh, contained in the uh, free text part of an electronic health record, but the information is written someplace. Um, How can we get access to the relevant information that is written and published someplace and bring it into the, the thought process of a decision maker um, so that they can use that information more effectively. Watson is a star at processing enormous quantities of data. It understands English and it's really fast. For example, playing Jeopardy, Watson was able to read and consider about 200 million pages of text in only three seconds. Now, Watson's analytic capacity is being turned towards medicine. But what exactly does it mean to teach Watson medicine? Uh, Watson is an example of what's called cognitive computing, computing that actually thinks as this thing from just calculating. And um, as, uh, as a cognitive system, Watson 
learns in several ways. Um, a dominant way is something called machine learning, where Watson figures out itself what it has to do to do better. So, for example, what we're doing now with Memorial Sloan Kettering and WellPoint is teaching Watson how to interpret the health record of a patient with cancer. What are the critical attributes? How do you interpret the information? What's the relationship between pieces of information in the electronic health record for a cancer patient? And how does it use that information to read sources of, of, of information, such as um, guidelines uh, or, or journal articles, um, to help it choose recommendations for therapy for that patient? So in, in a way very much analogous to how Watson was taught how to play Jeopardy, you know, Watson was fed histories of patients along with the, the, the proper therapy that was chosen for them. And now Watson is being given information about patients with cancer and Watson is being asked to uh, come up with choices on possible therapies and Watson is told whether it got it right or wrong. So if Watson were wrong, it would look at its algorithms, at its uh, at mathematical processes that helped it understand uh, language and create a response and figure out where it went astray. If Watson were told it were correct, it would look at what happened that, uh, that helped it get the correct answer and adjust its algorithms, reweight everything um, in recognition of the fact that it was correct. Other types of tools help analyze other types of information. We've been talking about Watson itself, which again is both in this knowledge-driven decision support that I mentioned, of, that the information exists and, and is, is written down someplace, and Watson helps find it. The other side of that is there's, uh, well, 80% of the information we work with is of this text-like printed natural, what's called natural language form, the natural language of being the normal language of communication. The other 20%, which is also very information-rich, is what's called structured data, basically numerical data. You know, things like lab results and, and, and so on and, um, that would be stored in, in, in a record someplace, either in a laboratory or, or in the hospital or in the doctor's office, um, and image information, you know, you know MRIs, um, CTs, X-rays, uh, echocardiograms, and, and so on. Watson doesn't directly analyze those, that kind of information. You know, Watson can interpret the report of an image, you know, an x-ray report, for example, but it doesn't interpret the image itself. But there is a lot of important information in this other side of things. So we have tools that analyze that information and lead to what we call data-driven decision support, looking at all this data, both for your patient and for millions of other patients, looking at the data integrating it, analyzing it, and drawing conclusions from the, the data for millions of patients to look for information about patients that are very similar to your one patient. Could you please give us some examples? Well, there's, there's a tool, we, we call it um, intelligent clinical decision analytics. And what in, intelligent clinical decision analytics does, for example, is uh, you, you're dealing with an individual patient. Um, and this patient can be described with many, many characteristics. The patient happens to be diabetic and happens to be asthmatic. But that doesn't really completely describe the patient. You, know, you can describe this patient if they have these two diagnoses. They've been hospitalized 17 times. They take five medications. 
Um, they've lived in California and Nevada and Tennessee. Um, they're uh, of a certain age, of a certain ethnicity, and you, you can just collect lots and lots of information about the patient, perhaps thousands of characteristics that describe this patient. Um, and then look in the population of patients for which you have electronic health records, like if it's a large healthcare organization, maybe three or four million patients uh, about which it has records, or if it's part of a broader you know, multi-state information exchange, it may be millions, you know, greater millions of patients amongst all those patients to define a cohort of patients that are substantially similar to the one that you're working with. And then use that information to look for differences in outcomes. You may find that you know, it's not published anywhere, but if I look at the records for all these patients, patients like the patient in front of me do better with treatment plan A than treatment plan B, even though treatment plan B is the one that's most often advocated in the literature. It turns out for patients like this, treatment plan A is better. And, and so you're basically creating new evidence from analyzing existing healthcare information for millions of patients to learn things about outcomes for patients like the one you're trying to treat. So you're creating new information. And it's what we call data-driven um, decision support, basically creating new evidence from existing data that you can use to help make per more personalized decisions for your patient. Is the idea to eventually incorporate structural learning platforms into Watson? Especially incorporate it into Watson, per se, uh, but to have those different tools work together in a common platform so that the suggestions um, that the decision maker gets um, um, have the benefit of, of analysis of all the different kinds of information that exist. So it's funneled through Watson or some other way, um, you know, that, that'll, be, that'll be determined. But the, the, the future is that you know, when you're making a decision, you would like that decision to be aided by all the relevant information that exists. You know, that, that the future goal is these all work together. Now we'll hear from Dr. Mark Triola about how some new technologies are changing the way medicine is taught. There is really an imperative for medical schools to rise to the challenge of new ways of teaching our students to learn and empowering them to practice medicine in the midst of the science of medicine being transformed by technology itself. So here at NYU School of Medicine, we've really been trying to push that envelope and to both invent and implement educational technologies that are designed to give our students greater power over the way they learn and to teach them how to use these tools to support their learning as they go out into practice and for a lifelong career in a very dynamic field that is medicine. So uh, a couple examples, and these are ones that I'll, I'll, uh, I'll talk a lot more about at the conference, are the first is our virtual microscope system. So we saw that our students were using light microscopes like they have for over 100 years. The competency of what we were trying to teach them was not how to really use the microscope and to focus and to fiddle with the slides and knobs, but really to understand what it was they were seeing. How to differentiate the images of cells in their normal state, in which tissues they represent, and in their abnormal state, when there are diseases present or processes like cancer. And we saw that there was an opportunity for educational technology to remove some of the barriers and to give our students greater access and control to a huge library of slides that we have.
So we undertook uh, a long, a big project to digitize all of our slides, and we invented new software that uses Google Maps to allow them to view and uh, see all of our slides using the familiar Google Maps technology. So just like you would zoom in and out if you're planning uh, a car ride or wanting to see where things were, our students can zoom in and out on, on tissue and see cells. They can add their own markers. Um, our faculty can can conduct virtual laboratory sessions where as they move around the students, um, the student's screen syncs up to theirs in real time. And it's dramatically changed the way that we teach histology and pathology in the medical school. We decided after piloting this for just one semester to stop using physical microscopes because we saw how much more learning could take place in the same amount of curricular time when using technologies like this. And in that example, the technology replaced the way, not the content, but the way we used to teach that, those particular domains. Another example is our BioDigital Human, which we developed in partnership with a company called BioDigital Systems. And this is a three-dimensional, highly detailed, complete model of human anatomy. We are using that in our anatomy lab where our students can use a computer projected three-dimensional human. Our medical students are actually now wearing uh, 3D glasses while they're in the anatomy lab. They're still dissecting the human cadaver, which remains the centerpiece and the important part of the educational experience. But they're now using this three-dimensional virtual reality human to practice their dissection before they can do it, to in some cases visualize uh, what they just did after they've dissected the actual uh, human cadaver. And um, this has really also transformed the way that we are teaching this topic. But here we're, we're, we're using technology as an adjunct and we're not replacing the content. We're certainly not um, replacing the cadaver as a primary modality. We're, we want to augment and enhance that experience. And a key, a key point there is, is that the cadaver, which is such an amazing teaching resource, is something that our students only have access to for just a few months in the beginning of their medical education. The virtual biodigital human is something that they have access to for their entire career. And they can reference that in the operating room or on the clinical wards at any time. And it becomes a part of this ecosystem of learning tools that will stick with them as they go through their, their education and training. Is there any concern that studying and practicing on digital models might dehumanize the idea of healthcare? So we have used, viewed the opportunity of um, using educational technology as a way to shift some of the didactic teaching. And we've actually used technology, and this may sound paradoxic, but we actually use technology to open up more time in our curriculum for human activities. And so as we use these technologies, what we're doing is we're doing things like screencasting lectures and turning time that would have been relatively passive time in the classroom where the students are sitting in the lecture hall to time where we're now having team-based learning activities. And the technology has enabled that shift. Team-based learning activities are activities which are much more about interactions of people with among small groups of students with individual faculty. In some cases, the technology can actually increase the amount of time we require of our faculty to participate in the education. No matter what technology you're using, good education requires hard work, and it requires the time and investment by faculty, and we're so fortunate to have such an excellent faculty here at NYU. 
And so we really view this as we don't want to um, remove the students from from the, the human side of interacting with patients or put technology as a barrier in between them. Quite the opposite. This should be an enabler to provide more opportunities for just that in the curriculum. That's it for this Science in the City podcast. To learn more about emerging digital technologies in clinical care from these experts and from some of their colleagues, please join us at a conference taking place at the New York Academy of Sciences on Friday, March 22nd. For detailed information and to register, visit nyas.org slash digital health. The conference will also be simulcast as a webinar. The conference is jointly presented by the New York State Department of Health AIDS Institute, the Josiah Macy Jr. Foundation, and the New York Academy of Sciences. Physicians may earn up to six CME credits by attending this live activity on site. Also, Check back next week for a podcast on innovative ways in which technology is being used to motivate and study healthy behavioral changes, potentially with huge impacts on preventive health. That's it. Thanks for listening.